The New Testament reading is taken from the second letter to the Thessalonians, from the third chapter. You find this in your Bibles on page 1190. It's page 1190. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ's name to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament lesson is taken from the book of Ruth and the second chapter. A little bit of a lengthy reading, but one that I think you'll find to be riveting, uh, to say the least. So why don't you turn there in your Bibles. Uh, we have this on page 267 if you're using the Pew Bibles there, Ruth chapter 2. If you're just joining us for the first time in this series, we saw that Ruth uh, is the daughter-in-law of a Bethlehemite named Naomi. Naomi and her husband migrated to nearby Moab in the midst of a famine. Her and her um, sons... Uh, and her husband all migrated. They took Moabite wives, and the next thing you know, all three men are dead, and these women are grieving. Naomi returns back to Bethlehem. Na uh, Ruth comes with her, commits herself to the Lord, and to following the Lord, and to blessing Naomi. So we'll see what happens now as they settle into Bethlehem. Let's hear God's word. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Verse 3, so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. 
Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she, Ruth, bowed her fa- down her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law.
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As we get going, I just want to let you know that uh, some people have told me your past ministers uh, like to give uh, um, questions and um, things for you to meditate about as you follow up with the sermon. So in addition to the sermon text being uh, put on the sermon page of our website, I will start each week, starting with this week, uh, having questions for discussion. So if you're home groups or if you just in your families want to review those and discuss them around the dinner table, uh, those will be provided from here on out for you. Speaking of dinner tables, what I want to know is, do other fathers do what I do around the dinner table. You see, at the dinner table, I wait around until everyone has eaten. My youngest boy, Cliff, I know this, he doesn't eat the crust on the pizza, and he doesn't eat the crust on his sandwiches for some reason. My wife, being sensible, uh, she stops when she's full. The other boys, they don't love everything that's put in front of them, so the result is that there's always something left. And I wait for these scraps to be left on the plate, and then I swipe them up and I do my fatherly duty and I gobble them up myself. Please tell me, dads, that I'm not alone in this. Do you do this too? Some of you at least? Okay. It's probably not the healthiest thing to do, but it's some kind of fatherly instinct that's built into us. Now, Ruth is the hero of our book, isn't she? And she is a gleaner. She comes and boldly gets the scraps that were left over. And so I think that that makes us dads uh, heroes like Ruth as well. We're going to look here at the boldness of our story's main character this morning and of this new character that we've confronted. First, we'll look at Ruth's bold initiative. We'll call that the way that she presses into God's providence, pressing into providence. Then we'll look at Boaz and his bold blessing on Ruth and Naomi. Boaz presses into Ruth's predicament, pressing into predicament. Then finally we'll look at God's way of rewarding the boldly humble, his call for us to press into his pleasure. So pressing into providence, pressing into predicament, pressing into pleasure. First, then, Ruth's bold initiative, how she presses into God's providence. We've already seen, of course, haven't we, in chapter 1, that Ruth is bold. As Carolyn Custis James, who has, by the way, I think the best book on the book of Ruth, you should grab it. She says that passivity is not one of Ruth's strengths. And that's true. Chapter 1, she tells Naomi, don't tell me to go home and back to my old religion. I'm coming with you. I'm staying because your God is my God. And her boldness continues here in today's episode, and it's astounding. Now, when my family moved here to Zurich, we were surrounded immediately by caring people right from the get-go, our new family. And these folks, all of you, in fact, made sure that we had all the information we needed, that we had the right relationships, that we got connected with the authorities, and that the resources that we needed to thrive here were ours. But after all, you, you all called us to be here, right? 
you invested financially in us. So you want this to work, right? You have a vested interest in helping this to work. There's lots in this for you. That doesn't take away from your generosity. I'm grateful for it and I thank you for it. But I want you to see how different Ruth is. Ruth is more like a refugee, isn't she? Than somebody who's been brought to Zurich by their employer. There's no welcoming committee for Ruth. Naomi doesn't introduce her to anyone and no one even acknowledges her when she comes into town. And nevertheless, Ruth immediately gets to work. She looks at her situation and she thinks, okay, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. This town is literally called house of bread. We don't have any men in our lives, men to support us financially, to ensure our safety, to give us a social identity. But this God that I've committed myself to, he says that he has a big heart for the fatherless and the poor and the widow, for the sojourner, for the foreigner. And if that's not me, I don't know what is. And so she remembers also her commitment to Naomi. And before she gets to work, it's as if she turns to her Lord and says, in effect, you're going to have to help me here because I'm committed to you And I'm committed to blessing my mother-in-law. And then after her prayer, she takes action. She starts to press into God's providence. She tells Naomi that she's heading out into the fields, verse 2. That she's going to exercise her legal rights in Israel, given by God in the law, for the poor to be able to glean in the fields. You weren't allowed to harvest all the way up to the edge or the corners of your fields, You weren't allowed to go back with another crew and pick up things that were dropped in the fields. Those belonged to the poor, the gleaners. She's going to go and glean. She's going to look for some harvesters that that might show her some grace. She's got her plan. What does Naomi think of her plan? Did you notice verse 2? Naomi just stays home and says, yeah, okay. Sounds good. And so Ruth just goes on her own initiative. All she has is God's promise that God is for her and not against her. And she is, verse 12, as Boaz notices, taking refuge under the the shadow of his wings. And notice, she has the guts, doesn't she, to march right up to the foreman, the one who's in charge of the harvesters. And she says to him, verse 7, in effect, look, I don't have anything And I'm trying to serve my grieving mother-in-law, Naomi. You may have heard of her. Why don't you let me take grain from the sheaves right after the reapers do their reaping, before they've gathered it all up? I know that the gleaning law means that I can come by and pick up scraps that are left over when all is done. But let me come closer. Let me get at the barley sooner. Let me get more. Let me get what I need, she says. Now, it's funny because in verse 7, as the foreman is telling what's happened to Boaz. It's almost like Ruth was so bold that he didn't know what to say. So he just kind of said, okay. And the next thing you know, Ruth has all these privileges. And just like that, Ruth and Naomi go from empty, as far as bread is concerned, to full. 
she gets all kinds of special considerations, as we'll see in a minute. And most of all, when she returns home, look at verse 20. She stuns her mother-in-law, who for the first time here seems to be wondering if maybe God isn't her enemy after all. There's actually ambiguity here. She says, he has not stopped showing kindness both to the living and the dead. And is she talking about Boaz? Or is she talking about her Lord? We don't know. The question for us is, when you have experienced loss and heartbreak, when either literally or figuratively, you open the cupboards, you open the refrigerator, and there's nothing there. When you look in your bank account and the balance is negative, when you look into your own heart and there's nothing left because you have poured your heart out over and over again for those that you love and it doesn't seem to be being replenished. When physical or social or mental or financial resources are either gone or they're going fast, when your own willpower and your determination, your enthusiasm, your drive are depleted, then what are you going to do? The answer from Ruth is do this. Look outward. You've looked in and there's nothing or there's hardly anything there. And so look out instead. Ruth looks out from her situation and she sees a mother-in-law in need. She looks outside of herself and her resources and she discovers there the promises of God. And she grabs a hold of those promises. And then she hustles off to claim those promises, the legal provisions, first of all, that God set in place. And she does it with childlike faith. She marches out into the field and she gets to work. And with boldness, like we said, she goes straight up to the man in charge and asks for what she really needs. I think that one of the signs that your heart has been captured by the God who provides is that you boldly, unabashedly press into his providence and care for you. You say to your Lord, I may be poor, I may be poor in spirit, but you have said that I am a priest and I am a princess or a prince in your kingdom. And priests and princesses don't just belong, but they're vitally important to you. I'm going to act on your promises of goodness, God. I'm going to work hard to be a blessing to others. I'm going to count on you to bless my desire to be a blessing, even when it feels like I have so little. So do you believe that God is good, like Ruth? That he is for you and not against you? Then commit to being for others who are in need and press into God's providence with all of your need. Ruth presses into God's providence. She's bold in doing so. Secondly, we encounter Boaz and he presses into Ruth and Naomi's predicament. And he's bold with his blessing. And I think he's almost as bold as Ruth is here, even though Boaz is much more well-off than Ruth. Timothy Keller tells a great story about Alexander the Great. He says, Alexander had a general 
whose daughter was getting married. And because Alexander valued this general, this soldier, so well, he offered to pay for this fellow's wedding. And when the general gave Alexander's steward the bill, it was absolutely enormous. The steward came up to Alexander and told him how much the wedding had cost. And to his surprise, Alexander, without any hesitation, smiled and said, pay it. And the steward said, really? And Alexander says, don't you see? By asking me for such an enormous sum of money, it does me a great honor. Because I know now that he knows that I'm both rich and generous. Isn't that something? Boaz here is introduced himself in verse 1 as a man of valor, depending on your translation. This is the Hebrew word for character and wealth and power, kind of all bundled into one. He might even himself be a decorated military veteran, uh, considering this is the period of the judges and there were many wars. But he's not jaded by this period and its political and military upheavals. He has seen death and suffering, and it hasn't hardened him. He's still soft-hearted. He's like Alexander the Great then, wealthy and powerful, but without all the lust for glory and the colonial ambitions that Alexander had. And so, as a result, when he sees a vulnerable woman in his fields, from a vulnerable family, in a difficult predicament, what does he do? He acts. Now, most people approach their Bibles and they say, okay, the Lord has rules for me. There's a law here, I'm supposed to follow it. And we try to figure out what precisely are my obligations. I don't want to get in trouble. So I want to do what's required of me. I want to do enough to not get in trouble, enough not to dishonor my name. I'm going to do maybe the bare minimum. I might even bend the law to suit my purposes here and there. But Boaz is completely different than this, isn't he? He bends things, but he bends things in the other direction entirely, in the direction of grace and generosity. He goes beyond the requirements of the letter of the law. It's almost like by the time we meet Boaz, it has become a habit for him to ask of even the nobodies that he meets and bumps into, I wonder how I can help this woman or this man to flourish. And then you see this in his greeting to his workers in verse 4. He interacts with these lowly people. He's not just the boss, he's the owner. But nevertheless, there's a rhythm, almost a liturgy, out in his fields of mutual blessing between this wealthy landowner and his hired servants. It's almost like the whole story and plan of redemption has been bottled up in Boaz's heart. You remember that in Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham was, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing, and in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Boaz has internalized this plan and this promise of God, and it comes out, therefore, in his speech, doesn't it? And he's not just talk, he's not just being nice, he's not just a phony religious person who sort of uses Christianese to make himself look good. Because he acts even further. He sees Ruth. He finds out who she is. 
and he calls her over. And in verse 8, he starts to treat her like she's one of his very own servants, like she belongs there. He goes out of his way to make sure that she's not going to be sexually assaulted or harassed. We see this in both verse 9 and verse 22. Isn't that something? She gets to drink, verse 9, and then eat, verse 14, with Boaz's team, with his main men. Boaz sends her home with tons of barley, verse 17. And he gives her the guarantee that she can keep working with this team the whole season long, verse 8, verse 23. It's marvelous. So the rest of the world, Boaz thinks, might curse instead of bless. The the rest of the world, maybe even the rest of my fellow Israelites, might obey the letter of the law. But Boaz has gotten to know the heartbeat of his God. And so he's generous as he presses into the predicament of these women. They need his blessing. And it's his instinct to bless. And so I wonder, is it your instinct when you meet somebody, when someone by God's providence comes into your life, into your sphere of influence, even somebody who doesn't seem like much, maybe they don't have the right beliefs or the right political instincts or any financial savvy, maybe they don't have anything much at all. Is it your instinct to ask yourself, Lord, Might this very person right here that's come into my path be here in order to be blessed through me? Is that your instinct? To the degree it is, you have, like Boaz, captured the heartbeat of your God. See, you don't have your stuff, your influence, your wealth, your intellectual abilities, your social capital. You don't have any of that for your own sake but in order that through you, God might bless others. And after all, isn't Jesus himself the embodiment of just this heartbeat of God? Jesus was the the man of valor, like Boaz, a rich man, richer than him, powerful enough to create a universe by speaking it into being, full himself of character. And Jesus opens the generous heart of God to the people who are in the toughest of all predicaments, people with the greatest needs, you and me. He took the initiative. And after all, it was the habit of Jesus' own heart to be extravagantly generous. And you say, really? Before the world was made? Yes. For eternity, God the Father and Son and Spirit were pouring themselves out for one another, generously giving to the other. But then... In Christ, God turns to us to bless us who don't show much sign at first at all of being able to bless him back. Boaz has no prospects of social advancement by looking after Ruth. There's nothing in it for him. And the only thing that either Jesus or Boaz get out of their generosity is the joy of generosity itself. And then by God's grace, the relationship that grows up in the soil of their gracious action. And so that's why they press their wealth and their character and their power into the predicament of Ruth and Naomi and of you and of me and of all of us. You see, only if we see ourselves on the receiving end of all of this, 
Only if we see that we were in the greatest of predicaments, dead in our trespasses and sins. And then we see that Jesus has brought us back full, even though we were sitting there as empty as can be. Only if we see ourselves as the ones whose predicament Jesus sees and then into whose predicament he presses his love. Only then will we begin to become Boaz-like. Only then will we be agents of grace and blessing. Only then will our instincts be tuned so that we will spontaneously and joyfully be ready and anxious even to bless others for Jesus' sake. And then finally, we're called to press into God's own pleasure. We press into God's providence like Ruth. We press into the predicaments of those in need like Boaz. But we also press into God himself and into his pleasure over us. Notice that Boaz acknowledges twice in verse 12 that God is truly Ruth's Lord. He takes her commitment to the Lord at her word. And Boaz gives her, doesn't he, uh, in response, a benediction of sorts. And as we read this, at first it sort of sounds like Boaz wants Ruth to get what she deserves for her good deeds. She's done great things, now the Lord owes her, right? Kind of like karma, right? No, no, not like that at all, actually. Boaz wants her to receive the fullness, yes, the completion, yes, of her faith-filled and bold action. But Boaz recognizes, as does Ruth, that even though she's done a marvelous thing, she has done it where? Under the wings of the Almighty the one in whom she's come to take refuge. And so our little acts of grace and graciousness, they're always done under his huge act of grace towards us. And Ruth's reaction to Boaz's generosity confirms this. Verse 13, she doesn't say, it's about time somebody gave me what I deserved. The complete opposite of that. She says, in effect, I can't believe that I've found favor in your eyes. Why? You've comforted me in my grief. You've blessed me as if I belong, even though I'm at a rank that's way below your lowest of servants. I was a nobody to you. And you've shown me this loving kindness, this hesed that I've learned about from our God. Why? Why me? The Lord Jesus says that sinners and tax collectors And prostitutes rush into God's kingdom and into his pleasure ahead of self-confident religious types, doesn't he? The prodigal son gets a party when he comes home and repents while his really well-behaved religious older brother is lost, estranged from his father, and won't come in and enjoy the party. He won't press into his father's pleasure. Why? Because when you recognize that you are the thief on the cross next to Jesus, that you are the tax collector, the prostitute, the foreigner, the outsider, the poor, the widow, the poor in spirit, the prodigal son, then you're not thinking, when am I going to get what I've earned? 
You haven't earned the party. You haven't earned the reward. You haven't earned the feast. And yet there it is, spread out for you by pure grace. You haven't earned the right to be treasured by God, to be welcomed into his pleasure. No. But only you have, like Ruth, learned to take refuge under the wings of the Almighty and in his grace. And under his wings, the tax collector and the sinner and the foreigner and the outcast and the widow are rewarded and rewarded and rewarded more. They're exalted, they're lifted up, they're enriched, and they're given status and nobility and a family. The theologian Jeremy Begbie says that exaltation is by invitation only. And the humble never forget it. Ruth presses into God's pleasure with great boldness. She considers Boaz's field a corner of her promised land. And she has never forgotten, nevertheless, that her entrance into wholeness, into the land of plenty, under the wings of the Almighty, that all of this has come for her by God's invitation only. And so, she's humble. She still can't believe it. Me? Think of what different people we would be. Think of what a different church we would be if, whether our lives look poor and broken like Ruth's, or whether we're rich and joyous like Boaz, if we woke up every day and we said, I cannot believe that on the one hand my God knows me, and on the other hand, he loves me. I just can't believe it. I know it's true, but it feels in my heart still just too good to be true. What if we woke up and we said, today, you know what? I'm going to do something bold, something generous, something faithful. I'm going to do this to bless somebody that's not me. Because after all, here I am under the wings of God's gracious blessing for no apparent reason except that he is bold and generous and faithful and gracious to us and to me. Wouldn't that be something? If we captured the rhythms of God's heart, if they got to work on us in such a way that we said, I will never forget that this is all by his love and grace. And so today I am completely his. And I will boldly and lavishly bless someone else in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would happen in our midst. That this would become the rhythm of the life of our church. That in our families, and in our friendships, and in our relationships around the city, there would be something Boaz-like in the way we go about our business and the way we bless others, and the way we look out for the vulnerable. Do this in us, not because we feel guilty for not doing it, but do this in our hearts because you've caused us never to forget that we were on the outside, foreigners to your promises and grace, and you gathered us up and brought us under the shelter of your wings and called us holy 
and righteous and beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Capture our hearts afresh, O Lord, and then therefore put us to good use. And we commit ourselves afresh to you, praying together in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.